I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right, we're going team by team. I will be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Twelve months ago, headed by one of the worst, quote, coaching jobs in the history of the NFL, quote, unquote, the Broncos were two and four under head coach Nathaniel Hackett and headed towards firing him and getting rid of him. This year, under the new genius Sean Payton, the Broncos are one and five and headed in the opposite direction. Um, So not a good start for Denver. And it only got worse last night against Kansas City, who now extend their streak over the Denver Broncos to 16 straight games. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Russell Wilson, some potential trade candidates before the deadline, and, of course, the boo-boo breakdown with Vic Trohat later in the show. But uh, coming to help me do all that is Brad Spielberger. How's it going, Brad? It's going great. Yeah, you know, uh, Russell Wilson never had sub-100 passing yards in the Nathaniel Hackett era, so I'm not sure what exactly Sean Payton thinks he's fixed over there. Uh, can we talk about your your tweet late last night? You, you just, you know, randomly brought up a tweet from uh, earlier in the offseason. Uh, are you conspiracy theorizing, or do you think you're onto something there? Well, as, as luck would have it, I believe Tyler has the audio queued up of what Sean Payton said on the Colin Cowherd show back when he was a, you know, a media guy rather than a head coach so hit it Tyler what do we got it's healthy when we in scouting like to say well who does he remind you of and and we're not putting that pressure on Caleb saying oh you're going to be the next Mahomes but it's it's very good when you can say he's like this and so I brought it up yesterday on the show I, I I think he's a generational player now I've seen three or four games obviously not as much as I would if I was truly doing the evaluation, but it's a truly generational player, Caleb Williams. Now he, there's like a three minute clip there that I tweeted and he goes on to say that not only is he a generational player, but he is in fact so good that he is going to cause NFL teams to tank for him to the point that the NFL is going to have to introduce a lottery system to stop that happening again. Right. And this is a guy who remember, has got like quite a long history of antagonism with the NFL directly. I'm not saying Sean Payton is deliberately blowing up everything and tanking for Caleb Williams. I am, however, saying there's just a few data points pointing in that direction now. Yeah, not that uh, it would have impacted the final score, but the timeout at the end of the first half to, to basically allow the Chiefs to kick a field goal, like he himself called it a dumb decision after the game. Decision, uh, yeah, it would yeah. not have swung the outcome, but, you know, just all these little little things here and there. He's probably regretting the massive comeback against the Chicago Bears because uh, the Broncos would then be 0-6 and have a, a bunch of head-to-heads against other contenders for that first overall pick. And, I'll go ahead. And remember, that comeback was like a defensive player scoop and score, you know, Know, changes the outcome kind of thing it's like even that it's like we, we kind of had that loss in the bag and then some stupid edge rusher goes and wins the game for us god damn it 
Yeah, it would have been down, and Sean Payton would have been spamming like Samaj P. Ryan two yard <laughs> carries at the end of the game, uh, kind of like the the late. You know, they're down two scores, and they throw like a screen pass to him. It probably was just a checkdown outlet, and then he fumbles and loses that game as well. So, yeah, look, that he brought it up himself. So we're near, we're, we're merely just following his own words. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, Caleb Williams is that good. The Broncos are that bad. They obviously want to change things around. I'm sure Sean Payton would love to get to work with a quote unquote generational prospect like he is, and they are squarely in that conversation because I think even some of the few talented players they do have on the roster may no longer be there in the next couple of weeks. I mean, the, the biggest drama of the of the night may have been Jerry Judy dancing in the background of Steve yeah, Smith Sr.'s hit before the wild. game even started. That was wild. I don't know how much people are aware of that, but if you go searching Steve Smith on Twitter, you'll sort of find all of the various parts of it. But he, on his own podcast, what's it called? Cut to it, I think. Um, yep. He had basically criticized Jerry Judy and said he's sort of not doing a whole lot of anything, really. Uh, apparently that made Jerry Judy upset. So Steve Smith had, because Jerry Judy played well recently, Steve Smith tried to talk to him before the game, so it'll be like, hey, I want to apologize for saying this and, you know, go go ball out tonight. But Jerry Judy was having none of it and, in fact, was trying to, you know, start arguments with that, with Steve Smith, which, by the way, is one of the dumbest moves anybody's ever thought about as a player like let's go start a fight with steve smith um and then this just escalated over the course of the pregame judy like dancing around behind the shot almost antagonizing steve smith to attack him and lose his mind steve smith uh maintained the high road and didn't just blowtorched him on national tv and you know ripped him for being a completely average nothing of a player tier three i think was what he called him I don't know about it. I don't know about it. Took the high road. I mean, I do think. Oh, that was, he was taking like, the high road. Calls relative. me and asks. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, he was like, "Look, I'm not going to kill him. <laughs> I I value sure, my sure, job. Sure. I'm I not going to lose my job." It's all job. relative on the Steve Smith scale. Of, yes. You know what? What he could have done out there, just taking a charge at him. But yeah, I mean, you know, him saying if a team calls me and asks, "Should I trade for this player?" I tell them no. <laughs> Might just be his football opinion, not just tied to the you know the personal element here. But yeah, Judy was actually very good at the end of last year. But top 15 graded wide receiver for us from I want to say like week five or so on when their offense went from horrible to just bad uh you know he he was the main guy in that offense but yeah I mean maybe they trade him maybe they also trade Cortland Sutton who had one of the cooler touchdown catches of the season thus far last night obviously you know relatively meaningless but an awesome snag nonetheless you know released Frank Clark today and I think in a lot of ways, ignoring all the other stuff, and it does make sense. Jonathan Cooper had six pressures last night, forced the interception of Mahomes, forced a, a, an intentional grounding on Mahomes, and had a sack. And then Baron Browning, who was awesome last year, I think should return next week. So there's no reason for this team not to play a bunch of young players, let them all get experience, get reps, and yeah, lo- lose some more games and get in that Caleb Williams sweepstakes. So, you know, conspiracy theories aside, do you think there's anything to that? Because when you look at... One of the ironies of the game last night is that Denver's defense actually showed up for the first time maybe this entire season, right? Like this is a a defense that are getting blown out at a historical rate, putting some of the worst numbers we've ever seen out there going up against the Kansas City Chiefs. And, you know, it had – and even dialing down or drilling down deeper into that, some of the underlying numbers looked even worse from a matchup perspective. Now the Chiefs end up covering, but it wasn't the blowout that everybody thought it would or or should have been. Um, 
And then in, in the one game where that actually happens, the Denver offense just completely self-destructs again, right? Looked more like last year than this year's version, which had been taking steps in the right direction. But when you look at, like, the plays that they're calling, it's like this doesn't look like – I mean, Sean Payton, whatever you think about him, was a very smart head coach and offensive mind who called smart plays and generally put players in a good position to succeed. He's not a guy who, like – calls timeout on fourth and three and dials up a play that never looked like it had any shot of working at any point and like leads to a sack, right? Like what what are we doing here? You look at what they're calling late in the game when they're trying to theoretically mount some kind of comeback and like this does not look like an offense that's really trying to win. You know, it, it truly did not. And like you said, the defense did show up. I think part of that also was the Kansas City Chiefs offense. They continue to be atrocious on yeah. the third and short. Uh, I actually, you know, tweeted last night. I thought maybe Eric Bieniemy losing him was a big element of that. They were 31st in EPA per play on third and one last year as well. Um, and they just always get too cute. Everyone, you know, in Chicago loves to – I get a million Matt Nagy responses <laughs> in my comments. Like, look, Andy Reid's running the offense, and that's his – you know, it's where he learned all of his football from to a degree. So, uh, yeah, but it's just like, why are you doing a fake field goal when you could just drop back with Patrick Mahomes? Why are you kicking some early field goals? And it was windy and there were other elements at play. But the Chiefs could have scored 30 points fairly easily if a couple other things swing their way. But, yeah, the offensive play calling, which has been largely pretty good, you know, for the Broncos so far this season, top half of the NFL and a bunch of, you know, underlying metrics. Granted, they played some horrible defenses. But, but yeah, it was just not a winning recipe by any stretch. And then Russ, man, I mean, we'll get into him in a little bit here, but it just looks broken. I mean, even plays where we could blame, you know, some of the offensive linemen, the, the, the Chris Jones sack on, on Mike McGlinchey. I mean, Russ could have taken four steps up in the pocket on that play. He was only about eight yards back, so it's not like he was hanging 12 yards deep, but just little elements of that. Yeah, taking a sack on fourth down, it, it's just everyone, the whole thing is broken. Yeah, and and the, the the thing is, it had looked a little bit better up until basically last night, and then it went all the way back to just complete disaster again. Um, and maybe Russell Wilson does look a little bit more athletic than he did last year, but it's still it's still bad decisions, right? It's still not enough to be like he's he's not going he's never was and is never going to be Lamar Jackson or Justin Fields. So you can't survive just with the athleticism. You still need to be a functional, high level quarterback as well, and that isn't there right now. Um, yeah, we'll get onto the the Chiefs' offense in a second, but you know Travis Kelsey was fantastic in that game, even with his bum ankle. Obviously, they were feeding him early in the game. You get the the lateral, which I'm fascinated by those plays because everybody within Kansas City maintains that they are basically Travis Kelsey going rogue mid, mid play, but they are they look designed in terms of. The plays are drawing up trail runners. Like, there's a guy there by design at almost all times in these plays, right? And maybe Travis Kelsey certainly has the, like, he's deciding to pitch it to him, but it's, he's there. Like, it's not like there are offenses in the NFL where that would not be an option. The guy simply would not be in the vicinity because the plays are not being designed that way. So, I, I'm kind of curious. I don't know how much there's, that is true, that it's just 100% Travis Kelsey deciding to goof around and throw a lateral when he can. 
Yeah, Mahomes was on the the post game, yeah. uh, you know, dais with the people, and he said, yeah, like he does it in practice a bunch, and he's not supposed to. It's not part of the play. But like you said, I mean, Noah Gray is running like a, you know, like like right in the perfect path it's to where you'd want line. to hypothetically lateral the ball. I got a feeling maybe it's it's a little bit of a it's an option, it's a choice. Yeah. Please don't do it unless it's like perfect. <laughs> and, and in that situation, I think you know there was no one near Noah Gray. Kelsey was flat footed at that point, so it made a lot of sense. Got them the first down, but. Yeah, I, I think maybe they're just kind of trying to hide that from the people a little bit. I, I'm sure it's an element they're at least open to doing, you know, once or twice a game. It looks too much like other plays in the NFL over the last few years that are clearly by design, right, that have been drawn out specifically for, like, crazy third in a million situations or late in the game. It's like they are similar plays that have a specific design support line by a, a player running a different route to arrive right after that guy catches the ball. Like, it's... It's too well-coordinated for this to be just complete coincidence and, oh, no, Travis has done it again. Like, let's stop him doing that. I think it is part of that offense, and he's the perfect guy to be executing it because he's, you know, he does it and he's capable of doing that. Um, the, the other element of that game was Chris Jones, as you said, the sack of Mike McGlinchey. He is now dialing up. Uh, he's really interesting because – He's still playing on the edge, right? Not all the time. Remember, there was this whole thing of, well, they're going to move him to be a full-time edge rusher. And he was good at that. It's just he took away what he brings on the inside. And then they moved him back inside. And now he seems to have found this balance where he'll play inside most of the time, but he'll then move outside and wreck an offensive tackle for a sack most of the time and then move back, right? And I kind of wonder, I haven't looked this up yet, but whether he specifically knows that just by being a freakish, you know, six foot six, 310 pound body type, it's going to win the first time he does it because no offensive tackle is prepared for that. And then, so he just does it for like, you know, when is the first big third and long play that we're going to have? Let's dial it up for now. I'll get the sack, high leverage play, and then I don't have to do it that much more in the game. It's amazing the way he's able to just sort of turn it on almost at will. That rep in particular was crazy to me, too, because I mentioned, A, Russell Wilson was not that far behind the line of scrimmage. I was looking at it because I was kind of wondering, was this maybe more Russ's fault than McGlinchey's? He was eight yards or less behind the line of scrimmage, A. B, Chris Jones gets the edge and bends around the edge. It wasn't like he had, no, you know, like speed good. to power or just like bull rush Mike McGlinchey. No, like he dipped his inside shoulder and just beat him around the edge. And I haven't looked at it. I would guarantee you it was less than two and a half seconds. It may have been less than two seconds. Like it was it was a clean, well-executed bend around the edge by a, you know, 300-pound guy. Yeah, I, I mean, he he's absurd. He had a bunch of wins the rest of the night as well. He, he threw McGlinchey on a run play as well, just tossed him to the side and got in the backfield immediately. But here's the crazy thing, too. So, A, the Chiefs have the youngest defense in the NFL by average age. And B, Charles Amenahu comes off of suspension and, and joins the lineup next week. He was awesome last year. He also has inside-outside flex. I mean, Steve Spagnuolo is probably going to have both those guys on the edge, both rushing from the interior. I mean, they're going to dial up a whole lot of looks with both of those guys in the fold now. No, absolutely. They're, the defense is only getting bolstered, and it looks pretty good to begin with. Let's talk about the offense, though, because, again, it didn't really fire on all cylinders. Patrick Mahomes made a couple of pretty big mistakes that he doesn't tend to make, but now we've got, you know, six games into the season for them, um, only one of which looks like or looked like the Chiefs, right? The, the game against Chicago where they looked like they were going to threaten Miami's 70 points and then eventually benched everybody and dialed it back. But last season, the Chiefs offense averaged 29 points a game. 
Outside of that Chicago game this year, they're averaging eight points less than that. So like a whole touchdown and then some less than they were averaging a year ago. The offense is not clicking the way it clicked in the past. You know, the defense is playing better, so it's sort of making up for it. And you've at least got that one Bears game in there to say, theoretically, it's still in there. But like, at what point do we start to wonder if this is going to come together? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, Denver's defense, like we talked about, has been historically bad, so you'd want to see a huge output. The funny thing, though, is Mahomes still averaged 7.7 yards per attempt, and I think his best throw of the entire night was dropped by Justin Watson down the right sideline. I mean, it was absolutely perfect, right in, right in the breadbasket, and, and he just couldn't make a play. So I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm like concerned yet, but you do. The, the beautiful thing of Prime Vision last night is you can watch the receivers run their routes. Guys are not really getting open. I think Rasheed Rice is becoming more and more of a focal point, and he wins over the middle, but he's getting a lot of free releases, or he's sitting down in soft spots against zone. You don't see a whole lot of man from Denver and Vance Joseph, but when you watch those reps, like it's Travis Kelsey or it's Mahomes throwing a back shoulder ball or, you know, going backyard football and a guy gets open, not, not on the route, but gets open just because, you know, he kind of freelances. You know, I mean, the Kadarius Tony, the whole playbook with Kadarius Tony should just be thrown out the window. <laughs> I, I mean, it doesn't work. He has an average up the target about two yards and he did have the touchdown last night, but I think every other play was probably a negative play. I'm not going to say they have to trade for someone or they should be panicking or yada, yada. But, yeah, like on the outside, they're not winning really at all right now. It is worth pointing out as well that, you know, for this season, they didn't have Tra Travis Kelsey week one. He got injured against uh, you know, Minnesota. He He's playing not 100%. Okay, he's still cooking, but they don't have or they haven't had their number one uh, primary weapon and target in the passing game for periods of the game and or periods of the season and healthy for an even bigger period of the season. So presumably there's more to come. But yeah, it is kind of concerning that that wide receiver group who like up until now, the biggest concern has been just sort of figuring it out from a fantasy perspective. But from the offensive perspective, it's like, yeah, at some stage, we actually do need these guys to take a significant step forward and, and dominate. Um, the other element I think that's different to a year ago is the changes they've made on the offensive line have not necessarily been positive ones. Um, Donovan Smith had a 47.7 passing uh, pass blocking grade in the game last night. Juwan Taylor, you know, has been well advertised, the sort of issues he's been dealing with in terms of <laughs> took the piss on opening night with, with alignment and jumping offside, and now he's sort of getting persecuted with that in terms of penalties, but also hasn't actually been playing that well. So... He's a guy who a lot of offensive line Twitter or whatever puts out there as being one of the best pass blockers in the entire NFL. The PFF grades have never been that kind to him. He's been good, not great in that area, and now he's not playing as well as he has in the past. We probably talked about it last year. I'm sure you and I at the Combine. Like I had a projection for him going to free agency. I want to say of $16 million a year, and I frankly thought that was generous. I was like, hey, he's young, he's been good, and we all know how the nature of free agency works. And I had a couple people be like, you're way too low. Like He's he's not taking anything less than $18 million a year. And look, sometimes I hear that and I say, eh, you know, depending on who I hear from. But like this came from people that have nothing to do with Jawan Taylor in any way, shape, or form. So I think I bumped it up to like 18, and he goes out and gets $20 million a year from a very good front office and very good building. So, yeah, has not played up to his standard yet. And the beauty of it, though, I think, is that because of how good the interior is, and then Patrick Mahomes is our highest-graded rushing quarterback. Obviously, it's all scrambles, you know, not design runs, but but I, it, it kind of <coughs> mitigates that issue. But 
Yeah, at a certain point, if their tackles are not holding up well and they can't win outside downfield, you know, Marquez Valdez-Scaling had zero targets on 30 routes run last night. I guess I do wonder, do we ever get to a point where they're so good, you know, seven yards and in over the middle of the field with, you know, Rasheed and Travis and Noah Gray and Sky Moore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that eventually teams say, okay, we can't lose, but, you know, death by a thousand cuts. We have to maybe not play single high, but just like, cheat a little bit and, and and expose the the outside deep and then the, the the chiefs go back to being you know the 2019 chiefs with, with all the explosives i'm sure teams would still take this path as opposed to that one but that's probably the the, the way they accomplish it is just all right we're just going to kill you on seven yards a clip until you adjust yeah um the other element of juan taylor is he is He's been actively bad as a run blocker for like three straight years now. So whatever he is, a pass blocker, obviously that's the more important element, particularly in this offense. But even assuming he was going to be as good as a pass blocker as he thought he was going to be, you are signing up to be voluntarily bad at, at, at run blocking on that side of the line. Um, and he's not holding up his end of the bargain as a pass blocker this season as well. So I think it is a problem if he continues at this level for the whole way. You bring up an interesting point, though, because <clears throat> during that game, Denver, like in the first half, it's like, how do you stop Travis Kelsey? Like, this is literally unstoppable right now. They end up putting Patrick Sertan on him and being like, all right, let's just put our best cover guy on Travis Kelsey and hope that does it. And even that couldn't stop it. Like, Sertan was in t- tight coverage, but the ball still got there and Travis Kelsey still made the catch. It's like, okay, we still can't stop this. Um, and you're right. You now have this weird tension between this is probably the more efficient way of playing defense because while they're doing this they're not dropping a 50-yard bomb to somebody over the top and putting seven on the board immediately maybe it'll falter somewhere uh but you can only be beaten by so many of these plays before you're like you have to stop this like i don't even care just do something fix it this is too bad because you know you don't want to listen necessarily to the opinion of fans but you reach a point and it's like, how how are they still getting beaten by the same thing, right? Like, fix this. And the reason it's happening is because the alternative, the way of fixing it is to open up something way more dangerous by clamping an extra guy down on him and taking him out of the secondary. Yeah, and obviously this would probably correct, but Mahomes has not been very good throwing the ball deep this year at all. He's actually one, I think one of our lowest-graded quarterbacks on throws 20-plus yards downfield, and I'm sure that is by design by defenses, again, just taking that out of the playbook. But then you also see last night on Amazon Prime, you know, shout-out shout out Sam, shout Sam Schwartzstein. Isaiah Pacheco is one of, I think, three running backs with positive EPA on the season. Like, he's not, you know, he didn't break off anything huge last night, but... I remember one or two, you know, negative gains or unsuccessful runs. Everything else was six, seven yards against light boxes. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Like, maybe we do see that adjustment to a degree. You get some three safety looks or or, or teams get exotic with what they do. Like, I kind of think of a Raven situation where Geno Stone's been a good deep ball guy or, you know, deep third guy. Obviously, Marcus Williams can do that as well. Like, you just try to really get different and and do different things against them. But they're going to kill you. Whatever you take away, they're just going to kill you on, on, on what you give them. The last thing I wanted to mention in this game was that play the Chiefs did on fourth and two, where they, the fake field goal essentially, where they shifted into the, the tush push, brotherly love, double cheek push, brotherly shove rather, double cheek push, whatever you want to call that thing. They lined up, you know, to kick a field goal and then shifted into that formation just before the snap and tried to get two yards out of it. Um, it, it there's a few layers to this. Number one, like, 
The Chiefs are definitely hurting themselves because they refuse to run a bog standard QB sneak with Patrick Mahomes, right? He got hurt that one time, dislocated knee, cap, or whatever it was, and now they just refuse to make him run a QB sneak. And so they're coming up with this like endless variety of ways of not running a QB sneak and just running something different. And it's not helping because most of them aren't working, right? It's, I, they need to figure out some way of doing that. Even if you have a designated sneak quarterback and just trot out you know, the backup and have him run the QB sneak, do something because this is madness. Um, but then you get to this play. On the one hand, it's kind of clever, right? Because when you line up as a, to kick a field goal, you can't line up directly over the center there's a gap in the in the middle of the formation on defense. And if you can get it done quick enough, you should have like a clear pathway to yardage. Now, the problem is, and I suspect the issue with this is, I actually think it's quite a clever idea that you don't know whether or not it's going to work until you run it. Because it's entirely down to how quickly the Denver defense sees what you're doing and adjusts to it. And they did it quickly enough, right? Because the downside is, if... The Broncos' defense shifts back quickly enough and essentially stuffs up those A gaps. Now, all of a sudden, you're relying on a long snapper to block like straight ahead for two yards against a you know a defensive formation, and a long snapper is not going to block like Jason Kelsey. It's just not going to happen. So, I actually feel it. He got ridiculed for this, and it's like this is one of the worst like play calls decisions ever. I actually think conceptually it's not the worst idea in the world, but you don't know if they're going to be able to get it quickly enough until you run it, and and if it doesn't happen, you look like an idiot. Yeah, so two things. I I do think uh, one thought in the back of my mind has been like all these failures probably will set up something down the road, maybe in the playoffs, to where they do something off of it and it actually works when it really matters. Or just run a sneak. They have one of the the greatest designated QB sneakers in college football history. They got the belldozer. Blake Bell on the roster, give him the ball. And maybe, just like I said about a wrinkle, maybe he does it one time, but he actually rolls out and throws a pass or something. But yeah, I mean, they have one of the goats, the Oklahoma legend, Blake Bell, in the mix. Why not? Yeah, I, I just think they they get too cre- too desperate to avoid Mahomes doing that. There are better solutions than, you know, random-ass trick play, particularly to try and get two yards. I mean, whatever it was, fourth and inches, maybe, but fourth and two, the second Denver shifts back towards the middle, you're like, this it's dead. It's not happening. Not a chance. DJ Jones and Mike Purcell are a good player. Like they have they have the guys there at that position too. It's not like you're doing it against the team, maybe lacks a good nose tackle. Yeah. You also, yeah, it was I think it was like a little bit over two yards as well. That's a one and a half yard and in type of play. Yeah. Particularly again, when we're talking about a long snapper trying to execute that. Yeah. That is uh that's just unlikely to happen. Um but anyway, before we get into our next topics, we've got to talk to you about uh, fabric, the and the most important task you're going to have this uh, season, securing your family's financial future, starting with life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. It has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and apply when it's convenient to you. It's all online and on your schedule. 
You go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject underwriting and health questions. Um, all right, I want to talk about Russell Wilson. Uh, clearly, it was disastrous last night. I kind of agreed with the way Tony Gonzalez summed it up on the postgame show, which is he's not the answer. I'm not saying he's the problem, but he's not the answer. And that's the important part here. Uh, you know, he signed this crazy giant contract extension. Everyone was like, that ties him to Denver until the year 2082 or whatever. What are their options at this point? Like, let's say we've decided already, Sean Payton's had a look at this. Sean Pay- or, uh, Russell Wilson's all shucks thing is rubbing him up the wrong way. He's not playing well enough that he's willing to deal with that. So Peyton has already written him off, right? It's, it's like, how do I get out of this? What are their options? How quickly can they get out of this? And what are we dealing with here? I will say, not to be mean to the guy, he got rocked near the sideline by, I think, Willie Gay or Nick Bolton, and not a single Denver Broncos player did anything about it. Like, it it was, like, barely in bounds. Like, it was Justin Herbert's same distance from the sideline, and the entire, you know, bench cleared. So, but anyway, not going to pick on Russ any further. So, look, I I think unless you can try to pull off the Brock Osweiler-type trade where you basically attach a draft pick to his salary and send it elsewhere, which I I think is kind of a fantasy – they have to do a post-June 1st release this upcoming offseason in 2024. So here's why I say that. So he is owed $39 million for 2024 in both cash and you know salary cap, which you're going to have to pay. But if you don't cut him before March 21st of next year, his $37 million 2025 salary when he's 37 years old becomes fully guaranteed. So what you do is, Beginning of the 2024 offseason, March 18th, you do a post-June 1 designated cut of Russell Wilson. You'll have $35 million in dead money for 2024 and $50 million in dead money for 2025. Yeah, so you're still talking you know, $85 million in dead money, but you have to do it. I mean, you cannot let a fully guaranteed salary of $37 million in 2025, you know, be, become, you know, invest. Like, you cannot let that happen. So that's what I think needs to happen is, is you, you do a post you on this offseason, you eat $39 million cash and $85 million in total, uh, you know, dead cap. But that that is actually, as scary as it sounds, that's the best path forward, and they got to do it. There is a chunk of that money that is guaranteed for injury, right? Are they reaching a point where they actually need to think about not playing him this season because if he gets hurt they're kind of stuck with him for an additional sum an additional sum of money or an additional level of guarantee yeah if he can't pass a physical by that march date i mentioned then it would be you know the money would be his regardless right because it is right. already injury injury guaranteed it becomes fully guaranteed which means it becomes guaranteed you know for, for cap uh, and skill which the whole thing won't, won't get into, but but yeah. So look, I mean, they paid Jared Stidham a good chunk of change this past offseason, two year deal. I want to say ten or twelve million dollars. A guy that a lot of teams around the league do like and think is a you know probably a backup, but a good backup. You know, in that Mike White, Jacoby Brissett, whatever conversation. I don't think that move was by accident, and I don't know if it happens now, but yeah, I think there there comes a time where they're you know I mean they could be one and seven. They play the Chiefs again in two weeks. Uh, they have a couple other tough games in the schedule going forward. Yeah, there probably is a conversation of, look, Russ takes a lot of hits. He takes a lot of sacks. 
and we can't afford that risk, I think we do maybe get into that conversation in, in that, a month or so. That's what happened with Derek Carr, right? Like they decided the, he, if he gets hurt, we, we're screwed. So take him off the field. Like that's, we can't risk him getting injured and this screwing up the plan to move on from Derek Carr. And, maybe it, and that happened late in the year. Maybe that's when it happens with Russ. But there probably is a point where they go, this is not worth paying, playing him because otherwise we're in real trouble here. Um, is there any hope that they can trade him to anybody? So it's a thing. So if you want to prioritize cash over, you know, draft picks, which again, that was an issue because they obviously traded to get Russ. They traded to get Sean Payton, uh, you know, a first and a second round pick. And, and the second is this year. Right. Yeah, you'd have to do the Brock Osweiler. And I think you're talking about literally attaching your own 2025 first or whatever to him. And he probably still would have to rework his contract, maybe reduce salary or reduce guarantees or something. I don't know. I, I think it's it's a pipe dream. I don't think unless, I don't know, some terrible team just wants to add more draft capital. You would probably get a very good pick from Denver. Even if they do get Caleb Williams, they're not going to win a ton of games in 2024. But I, I think the most realistic thing is you just eat a bunch of cash, eat a bunch of dead cap, uh, and just kind of let Sean Payton figure things out for the next two years. And that's the thing is it's going to happen this offseason, right? Like people are looking at the the dead cap numbers or the the potential pain involved in getting rid of Russell Wilson and going like he's here until 2025 at the earliest. I, I, I you sounds like you agree with me that they're just going to have to suck it up and eat that dead money and get rid of him this offseason. You have no choice. You just got to do it. Bite the bullet. You know, admit the mistake. And, and it's you know a larger conversation of uh, it's tough because the way we kind of analyze GMs is by all, all the big moves they make. I'm sure Sean Payton at this point is basically dictating everything and running the building. And yeah, did George Payton make a bunch of big mistakes on a lot of his biggest moves? I mean, Russell Wilson, Randy Gregory, trading for Sean Payton. For, uh, funnily <laughs> enough, probably on that list as well. But there's so much good there. But yeah, I think he's probably you know on the way out. And so then you just kind of blame it all on the past regime, eat, bite the bullet, do all that. You bring in the rookie quarterback, and if you don't spend a ton, and you blame it on you know all, and you just kind of say, hey, we're we're trying to get back to being good in 2025, 2026 range. Uh, you know, let us figure that out. I think it's what happens. All right. So Russell Wilson's not getting moved before the trade deadline. But who are some players that you think could actually get moved before the deadline and potentially make an impact for, uh, you know, an acquiring team looking to add talent? Yeah. So Denver, of course, now at one and five. I think you got to keep an eye on Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton. I think both of those guys have been not I think they've been the subject of trade talks going back to last year. I think the price needs to come down for both of those players. Probably, you know, the Judy, they probably wanted a first. You're not getting a first round pick for Jerry Judy at this point. And Sutton, I'm guessing they probably want to look a third. You're not getting a third for Cortland Sutton. He's a good player. He, he obviously, like I said, had the awesome touchdown catch last night. But $14 million salary, maybe if you eat a bunch of that like you did Randy Gregory, maybe then you get a third. But still probably, you know, a bit of a tough sell there. And you look at the other bad teams, and we have a bunch of them playing against each other this weekend. Uh, you know, Minnesota without Justin Jefferson now, 1-4 and four going into Chicago. If they lose that game, but even if they don't, Daniil Hunter should be traded. Uh, I mean, they just have to do it. He's, a, he's the best player on the defense. I get that. But 28 years old, turns 29 in a couple weeks, um, will get you a nice value in return. And they need to start over the whole defense anyway. So I look there a little bit. The Patriots, they probably need to admit that they're just not close right now. I look at a guy like Michael Onwenu, who obviously we love, has been a good player across the offensive line, not playing well this year. But, I mean, they drafted Antonio Maffi, City So, 
you know, all these guys this past year to replace him. You might as well just do it there. Super interesting name. Maybe Josh, Josh Uchi. I don't know if they do it, but uh, it could be interesting there. And then Carolina. I mean, Brian Burns should be a name we keep an eye on. I think a guy like Terrace Marshall had nine catches in week four, didn't play a snap in week five. When that happens, you kind of your antenna goes up a little bit as to why that's happening. So, yeah, look at the bad teams uh, and look at the players that actually have value. I guess last one, Chicago. I don't think it's going to happen, but there are – you look across the NFL landscape and try to find a cornerback on the trade market, and I've been asked by 10 different fan bases on Twitter. I think the only player is Jalen Johnson in Chicago. He is a guy that legitimately could come in for some teams be a number one corner, for others be a high-end number two. On the last year of his contract – the Bears have Kyler Gordon, Tyreek Stevenson, and Terrell Smith, all guys they recently drafted. They're obviously not a very good football team. I just think that the price there could be so good, the Bears can't afford it to pass it up. So, yeah, th- those are a couple headline names there. Two um, two really interesting names, probably one of which is, is relevant to this, uh, that I thought were really interesting was Washington in this situation. They put themselves in with Chase Young and Montez Sweat. And Chase Young in particular, we talked about it on the show one of the days earlier in this week. He's playing really well, maybe rushing the passer as well as he has ever done it in the NFL, coming back off that injury. Washington obviously declined his fifth-year option, effectively said, we probably don't think Chase Young is either going to be the guy or at least we're going to make him prove it. But now they're in this spot where both Chase Young and Montez Sweat are reaching the end of their contracts. They only have one franchise tag between the two of them. As you pointed out in your write-up, they share representation, so they can't pit one of them against the other one because the the agent's not going to be up for that. So Washington either has to watch one of these guys, if not both of them, walk out the door or try and trade one of them so that they can use the franchise tag on the other. Biggest thing for Chase Young, too, is on a Thursday game, so short rest, because he obviously still has the injury things going on, had 11 pressures and a 38% pass rush win rate against the Bears in that game. Yeah, look, I, I really was shocked they did not pick up his fifth-year option. They literally did the exact same thing with Deron Payne and regretted it immediately and had to place a franchise tag. So now you try to go to Montez Sweat hypothetically and get an extension done just to free up that franchise tag for Chase Young – yeah, I mean, the reps are probably going to ask for the moon because the free agency benefits everyone. It benefits the player themselves. It benefits the entire league. It's tough because it's a classic situation where it's a coaching staff and a front office that are probably coaching and jamming for their jobs this season. But from the high level, from the franchise's perspective, not trading Chase Young at the deadline for more than you would get in a hypothetical comp pick situation is just bad business. So I don't know if I expect it, but they really, really should look into doing it. Because even if you do retain both, all right, you're then paying your defensive line like $130 million a year, uh, you know, between four guys if you try to work that out. So, I don't know, I guess you could tag and trade. But anyway, I think that, I mean, look, the, the new owner, Josh Harris, would come in and, and say, I get that you want to keep talent and win a lot of football games and save your jobs. Put his thumb on the scale and force them to make a move because it just it just is bad business if they don't. Um, yeah, I, I saw you wrote that point in the how much because that. That's a sort of reasonably sophisticated level of, like, understanding how the business works from an ownership point of view. Like, Josh Harris rocked in there, like, a few weeks ago. How, how in tune with that level of sophistication of, like, cap management, you know, all this kind of stuff, do you think he is? And if he isn't, is somebody advising him with that kind of thing? Because you're right, like, a, a, 
an experienced owner, that's exactly what should happen, right? This guy should come in and say, hey, you might not want to do this, but actually this is the best thing for the team. We're going to go in this direction. Does he know that at this point? And if not, is somebody in his ear that does? It's a very good question. You know, I do think we know he's a huge football fan. He's talked about kind of being in the mix to buy the commanders for a long time now. Uh, I think secondly, you know, he is – the Philadelphia 76ers are, of course, one of the most – analytically forward-thinking teams in all of professional sports. I'm sure Daryl Morey, I'm sure he's kind of thrown some ideas his way. You know, there are those brain trusts and certain, you know, owners that own multiple teams. They sometimes right. have a, you know, a data science or analytics team that kind of oversees all of the teams. I don't think we've read anything that's, that's happening in Washington right now. But, and then lastly, if I'm him, you live in Philadelphia, or I guess, I don't know, you own the 76ers. The Eagles do, you know, they're the smartest organization in the entire NFL. So I don't know, maybe you call up Jeffrey Lurie and ask his opinion. <laughs> uh, and maybe you should do that now in the same division and all that. But it's a, it's a good question. I don't know. But I mean, Josh, if you're listening, you should probably <laughs> trade Chase Young. <laughs> or just, you know, you know, Brad will, will be happy to work as a consultant. Um, you know, yeah. it's going to. A yeah. modest six-figure sum is all it's going to take yeah. to secure Brad's service for, you know, a phone call every now and again. That's all we're talking about here. It's perfectly reasonable. Don't worry about it. The, the commanders cost you six-point-whatever billion. It's an order of magnitude less than that to get Brad's services on the phone. So, look, anytime we can connect billionaires with consultants on the show, that's what we're here for. Um, before we get into the boo-boo breakdown... Uh, we're going to talk to you about this show being brought to you by Prize Picks. If you were paying attention last night, the Prize Picks we gave you out were 50-50. Chris Jones and George Karloftis, they did get over 1.25 combined sacks. Chris Jones, anyway. Uh, Javante Williams and Rasheed Rice, neither of them got in the end zone. So that's under the 0.5 combined touchdowns. Now, for this weekend, the picks, as delivered by the great ZT, Zach Tantillo, Debo Samuel and George Kittle combined for over, right, uh, 0.5 rushing and receiving touchdowns. So basically one of those guys scores, you're good. Uh, And then DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett over 0.5 rushing and receiving touchdowns. So if either one of those Seahawks receiver scores, you are golden. Uh, Prize Picks is a skill-based, real-money daily fantasy sports game. Uh, how does it work? You pick two to six players and whether they'll go more or less than their prize picks projection. You can win up to 25 times your money on any entry. At prize picks, you're not competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections. Prize picks entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. You can even pick in-game projections after a game has started, which includes halves, quarters, periods, and more. Go to pricepicks.com slash PFFNFL and use the code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's pricepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Brad, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today and giving us all of your insight. And uh, now we're going to talk to Vic. Sounds good. All right, back in studio as ever on a Friday for the Boo Boo Breakdown. Our injury run around the NFL is our guy, Vic Troja. How's it going, Vic? I'm doing well. How are you? Not bad. Um, All right, let's get right into it. We've had a pretty big week of significant injuries. I guess the most obvious of which is, well, two two big ones I think are probably worth spending a little time on. Number one, Justin Jefferson Mm -hmm. with another hamstring injury. Um, I'm pretty much straight to IR. So it's not a good one, presumably. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, when you see a hamstring injury that that quickly sends a player to IR, you know it's a pretty significant strain. The one thing with a Justin Jefferson is you kind of look at that dynamic of where the team's at, what he means to the team. Is it worth him rushing back? Right. I think uh, the combination of all of that and then the severity of his injury, they just easy decision to IR. Is there any um, connection with – because when you watched him do that during the game, it looked relatively innocuous. Is there any connection to, like, how you strain the hamstring with the severity of the strain itself? Like, just what looks like a fairly innocuous tweak ends up being, like, a significant, great, whatever, hamstring injury. Well, it, it's interesting because – there is the severity of it can happen at that given point so what i mean by that is is you look at his injury and it wasn't like he was dealing with a a tweak from before and we talked about how like hamstrings just don't go away so when you have the severity of it that happens all at once yeah there's probably more muscle fibers um torn when they did the mri they haven't really given the exact report yet but they were looking at how much damage was done off of that one impact. The, the weird thing was he actually tried to go back out there. He was trying to get warmed up to get back out there. And I looked at that from the get-go, and I said this would be a bad choice if he, if he got back on the field because once you have like a pretty significant injury at the beginning there, then all of those minor tweaks come back, and then they can add up to be something major. Um, so I think with them, they were just like, we got to shut you down. We just got to call it quits and um, even – even now, I don't see him trying to push it back when he comes back from IR. So Yeah, I mean, now once he's on IR, I think it's a, a whole different world. Um, and then the other one, I think, is Anthony Richardson, who now – so they – it was a grade three AC joint injury. Grade three to me is just a terrifying, you know, red flag words. Those are frightening terms because yeah. that's bad, right? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I heard uh, you and Steve talking about this a little bit earlier. So there is six grades of AC joint strains. Okay. Is that different? Because all these things are done in grades, right? It's yeah. usually one, two, three is all you hear about. Like a lot. Like all of them have sprain. up to six? Yeah. No, no, like an ankle sprain is like three. Okay. The reason AC joint is different is because grades one and two are damaged to the ligaments. And then when you get to a grade three, you see tearing and separation. Grade three on an AC joint, and for for those listening that don't know what that is, that's basically the end of your clavicle. That's just the tip of your clavicle, how it connects to your shoulder. Um, When you get a grade three AC joint strain, um, there's separation of that joint and torn ligaments. It's, It's the strain level that has surgical potential. So when I saw that he was getting input on surgery, I automatically knew it was at least a three, but judging by how it was, I didn't think it was a four or five. He He's probably going to be back and heal fully. Um, I haven't heard any updates on if he's going to have surgery, which makes me think no, which also tells me that he probably could be back after their um, after the IR stint, and they have a bye week in there too. So I wouldn't be surprised if he does come back and he's relatively healthy, but it's not worth putting a rookie in now with a injured shoulder like that. So grade three AC shoulder uh, injury is – is that as bad as a grade three, say, ankle ligament injury? 
Uh, they're just they're they're different because when you look at like a grade three ankle injury, that's about as severe as you get right. with the ankle. With a grade three on the AC joint, it's just identifying that there is tearing and separation. So because there's more complexity to the levels of it, it doesn't mean that it's like necessarily as comparable as far as the severity of it, but it just shows that that there's that much more level of damage that can happen at that joint. Okay, but theoretically, this is not something that just because you hear grade three, it means like. He could be done for the year. We're shutting him down. This is a Drew Brees, like, this is scaring teams off in the offseason type of thing. This is just, it's bad, but he'll be back and he'll be fine. Yeah, like, you just saw um, uh, Carr with the AC joint, right? Hmm. Well, his wasn't a grade three. It was, a, right. it was probably like a two. And the one thing that's also different, and you just have to put this into the context of who they are and what, what the reasoning of them coming back for, um, they're not going to be injecting Richardson's shoulder through the week just so he can get through a practice where a car can – probably mispracticed and be okay to get out there as right. a veteran. He's he, he he knows how to prepare his body better. Where Richardson, on the other hand, is um, a rookie who's going to need those practices, and they're not just going to inject him so he can get out there to practice. So there is differences there, too, just based off the player. When he's back, um, do they – does he need to – do they and he need to change the way they're playing him? Like, because this happened – on a run play, essentially being chased down from behind and mm -hmm. fallen on, right? Or right. driven into the turf. Do we need to, like when he comes back from the shoulder injury, is this now a concern that either short or long term, we need to change the way you're playing the game? You can't become this Cam Newton style power running quarterback. Yeah, I think, well, if Anthony Richardson's listening right now, he needs to call uh, <laughs> Murray and get Kyler. Um, to teach him how to slide like a baseball slide because he's just physical and he runs down the field. Now, I don't think that Anthony Richardson, and, we, and we've had this talk in the past, I don't think he is injury prone. And the reason I say that is because he's had a concussion, he's had a shoulder, he's had a knee contusion. The similarity behind all of that isn't that it's like the same body part by any means. It's that all three of those happened when he was scrambling and running down the field. It right. wasn't even out, out of the pocket, like, you know, behind the line of scrimmage. It was downfield, getting extra yardage, taking too big of hits for a quarterback. And he's a physical player. So I think what needs to happen is when they come back, if he's scrambling, fine. Just get him down. You know, don't take those blows. They I've clearly added up already in a short career. So my my concern would mostly be like, hey, you can't afford this much longer. Shoulder injuries always seem so random to me. Like sometimes you fall down on the turf and you're fine. Not nothing. It just you know it hurts. And then other times you fall down and your shoulder separates. And mm -hmm. there doesn't seem to be any like logic as to when that's going to happen. Like I've seen seen people playing goalkeeper right and they make yeah. the same dive that they've made a million times before only for some reason this time their shoulder pops out when doing it. you're like what the like <laughs> why can that just randomly happen yeah. and this it didn't look bad right it's yeah. just again just a fairly routine tackle from behind and then shoulder hitting the turf and boom grade three sprain done yeah. right he's out for uh, he's on ir yeah it's interesting when you look um so next time you watch a game and you see maybe a player that falls on their shoulder and you're wondering if they're going to get hurt look for two things one is is that arm forced upward yeah. so is it launched upward or two when they're landed on on their shoulder is there any rolling because when you get like a clavicle break or an ac joint separation a lot of times it's such a direct force down and the player being tackled 
doesn't have any room to roll or offload that shoulder, so it has to go somewhere. So those two things so I watch like a square when hit into the turf. Exactly, where you I mean, don't have anywhere to go. You don't have anywhere to go. So when I watch film on the, some of these, it's a relatively easy to diagnose if something happens just based off of those two mechanisms going into the um, tackle. And it's usually the actual the AC joint, like the the clavicle to the shoulder part mm -hmm. that goes when that happens yeah and i mean you do see clavicles break sure um but that's again that direct force but that ac joint is usually that pivot spot for it all right where else do you want to head uh in terms of injuries well um you watched the game last night so you got to see travis kelsey's mm. ankle come out and he looked pretty good uh dude that, i the, that thing's gonna be taped up the miracles of tape i've talked about this plenty of times in the podcast you can tape an ankle solid and you're good to go right Right. The question is, like, what's going to last longer, his ankle injury or his relationship with Taylor <laughs> Swift? I think that's the biggest question we have. But he actually looked pretty good, and yeah. I, was really, I was really surprised to see that. Um, we're going to see uh, – There was one play, right? There was one play where he clearly landed on it, hit it, something got tackled, I think. I forget exactly what happened, but he jumped up sort of limping, looked like he might come out of the game, and then was like, no, nah, I'm good, and kind of hobbled back to the, to the huddle, and then was, was good to go. Yeah, you know, it obviously just, like, however he was tackled, they clearly just tweaked it in a way that, you know, shot the pain back up through him. Yeah. One of the reasons I find football so fun to watch sometimes is, and I didn't even know this until later, um, Kelsey, when he originally hurt his ankle, he tried to sneak back into the game. Did you see that? <laughs> he tried to sneak from the sideline and, like, go back into the huddle, and they're like, no, 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 I'll get back out. So um, it's, it's interesting because he, he's probably going to be – he's slowly going to be getting better with this ankle. You're not going to really see as many um, uh, issues with it. But I do think that just by – even playing yesterday, that's got to yeah. be a little swollen, got to be a little bit sore. So that's just going to be something to continue <coughs> to manage. But like then transitioning from that ankle, you see the likes of Austin Eckler coming back. You see the likes of um, Saquon Barkley coming back. Uh, I think Austin Eckler has a, a higher potential of playing. Um, yeah, so it looks like he will play. That's yeah. a good one to, to kind of wrap up with, I guess. Um, Eckler looks like he's coming back. He's been out for a while now. Uh, is he likely to be – does he likely to look the same as he was when he went out? Like, because he was crushing it earlier in the, the season. I think they managed him great. Um, look at the Chargers with their healthcare team now, just on top, right? But I think they managed him well. I think they gave him appropriate break. Uh, a high ankle sprain, um, there is a high chance of that repercussion happening this, this season. So they managed him really well. Uh, he's had appropriate time. They're waiting until he is 100%. And coach talk all the time says, well, we got to get him to 100, and then they put him at their 80. Right. I really do think they're waiting. Um, and it kind of reminds me, like, his injury, I think, kind of went unnoticed a little bit. There wasn't a lot of talk initially. And it reminds me a little bit of Devon Achan, hmm. where – he went out and you didn't hear really a lot of talk about it and then next thing you know he's like wow he's dealing with some ankle issues he's going to be out for a little bit but there's not worth putting him back at 80 percent right. these two are explosive players that really need that ankle to be stable and then it just baffles me because then you look on the flip side and i feel like every single week that saquon barkley injures his ankle they're trying to get him back out there and saying he's questionable that's just going to keep on happening i mean if i'm them and then the Giants right now with all their injuries. On, Particularly on now. Like, yeah. what have you got to gain getting them back? You're already screwed. Yeah. So um, there's no point in pushing him. One last guy, actually, mm -hmm. just because we hit on the Giants there. Daniel Jones and this neck injury. Mm -hmm. What is that? And 
how is he likely to be back? They're talking about potentially he could be playing. Yeah, so last year he had a season-ending neck injury. Mm. This year the initial reports were kind of scary because he said it felt the same way. Right. But it's not. Now, when you have, like, anything like a stinger, and have you had – do you probably have – Not a proper one, no. So, like, when you get a stinger, you do get, like, radiating nerve pain down your arms or arm. And that also can mimic some of the things that you might feel, like, with a neck injury, right, which is really scary. Like, when you put somebody on a spine board, if, like, they're laying down there and they say, I have tingling in my arms, boom, spine board on the field. Right. And they're not even messing with it. So if he had any similar symptoms, they were really cautious with that. And it didn't turn out to be that at all. I think that um, what held him out last year is he actually said he was good to come back. And the docs were like, no, I don't think you're ready. This time, I just don't think it was as significant. It's not even, it's, it's not even going to be, I think, a hindrance to him as long as he doesn't get hit like that again. Um, like, I mean, on the flip side, you look at somebody like um, Leighton Vander Esch, who hurt his neck again, and this is a guy right. who's, I mean, dropped in the draft because of his neck issues. Those type of, like, continuing, you know, neck issues, that is way more worrisome. I think that Daniel Jones is just, they're, they're going to be cautious with him. I do, I do see him playing if he's fully cleared by the medical team because I know right now that Daniel Jones says he can go. If he's in pain and it's a neck injury, like, is that – that feels like something that's going to be problematic for a quarterback who's got a, you know, head moving left to right the whole time. Like you can't just whatever about sort of modifying your play if you've got a sore ankle or a sore whatever, right? And there's certain things you can't really do where it's going to be pain. Like you can't if you can't turn your head without it shooting pain through your body, you've mm-hmm. got some problems as a quarterback. Yeah, and and I think if it was to the point of where like if he just looked over his shoulder and it was shooting pain, they wouldn't play him. I think if it's now, if it's like soreness by just like um, like really big range of motions, they can manage it like they manage other injuries and give them some medicine Sunday morning and right. go after it. So, <laughs> All right. So yeah. Daniel Jones might actually end up playing after all. All right. That's going to do it for our boo-boo breakdown, the injury roundup with Vic Troja here. And that's going to do it for the PFF NFL podcast for this entire week. Thank you all for listening. And Steve and I will be back on Monday.